What is the means by which I strive as a Christian? And the answer is grace. The grace by which you were saved is the very same grace by which you persevere. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of Grace Abounding Unto Salvation and Perseverance from Pastor Paul Twist. Pastor Paul moves his focus now to the second topic in this series, Perseverance. For this, he will take us to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. The eighth chapter of Romans is loaded with encouragement, often referred to by Bible scholars as the spirit chapter of the whole Bible. It is the Apostle Paul's lofty teaching on the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Blessed Holy Trinity. Before going there, Pastor Paul will summarize what he has taught us in parts 1 and 2 from Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 5 pictures two domains, the domain of death, our natural state. Then when we put our faith and trust in Christ, God's grace transfers us to the domain of life. Here's part three of Grace Abounding Unto Salvation and Perseverance to strengthen your understanding about grace-assured living. We looked at, from Romans 5, the reality of two domains, domain of death and the domain of life. And we were considering the question of how someone can transfer from one domain to the other. The domain of death is a domain in which we all find ourselves, apart from any work of the gospel, we all stand condemned, we are guilty on two counts, with and in Adam, we have all sinned, and so death reigns over humanity, and in our own strength there is no means by which we can escape. Paul then gives us the domain of life, rich, glorious, full of gospel realities, and the question of how we can move from one to the other is answered with grace. It is grace alone that allows us to move from death into life. Grace alone is the doctrine that rests central to our understanding of salvation. With all of that in view, there then arises at least one important question to consider. In many senses, I'll often say this, good Bible study simply depends on an ability and a willingness to ask good questions, to ask good questions of the text. It's always fascinating to me to watch the students come into the seminary at the very beginning of their education there. And as I teach them in one of the early classes, One thing I say to them, it would seem on a weekly basis, is that you're asking the wrong question. They ask the wrong questions of the text. They don't know how to ask good questions, and that is by no means intended to be a criticism. They haven't learned how to think rightly about the text and so ask good questions. And then it's my joy and privilege, a few years later, as as I get the same students again in a 
in a later class as they get ready to graduate, and they ask really good questions. That discipline is not restricted to those pursuing theological education alone, but it is a discipline that all Christians must work at, how to ask good questions of the text, because that's where we discover truth and theological riches. We need to ask good questions of the text, and you ask what constitutes a good question, that's actually quite easy. A good question is the question that the text desires to answer. A good question is a question that the text desires to answer. So as we looked at Romans 5 this morning and thought through the two domains and the means by which we move from one into the other, the next question that arises is how can I stay within the domain of life? How can I remain within the domain of life? Now that I find myself here by God's grace alone, he has saved me, not based on any work of mine. Now that I find myself here, how can I ensure that I remain here? How do I ensure that 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years on from that moment of initial justification, I am still found within the domain of life? How can I ensure that when the bottom is ripped out of my world, my response is not such that I go back into the domain of death? How can I ensure that until the very end, I am someone who is ever living in that domain of life? Or, if we were to ask that same question from a slightly different angle, what is the relationship between grace and perseverance? What is the relationship between grace and perseverance? That is the question that our text this evening, Romans 8, 12 through 17, desires to answer. Paul seeks to address that question, how may I remain in the domain of life? What is the relationship between grace and perseverance? And simply stated, the answer is, The grace by which you were saved is the very same grace by which you persevere. The grace by which you were saved is the means by which you persevere. This evening I want to unpack that, to explain that through our text under three headings. The first is simply the responsibility to persevere that we must persevere, the responsibility. Second, the means by which we persevere, how we accomplish the task of perseverance. And finally, what I've called the manner of our perseverance, what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. Beginning then with the responsibility to persevere, notice the passage begins, so then, brothers, we are debtors, We are in debt, not to the flesh, Paul says, according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And we can stop there and think about what Paul has just said. 
Another discipline that I want to exhort you towards, in addition to refining and honing your skill of asking good questions of the text as the means to write and proper and fruitful Bible study, another discipline that we all need to be pursuing is simply holding each and every text in its broader context. Much Bible study has suffered under a microscopic, myopic reading of the text. It's when we get our zoom lenses on to such an extent that we lose all notion of the broader context that we start to make theological errors. One thing that we are bound to do always when we read the Bible is to step back and to consider the broader context of the verses that are in view. Now, I labor that tonight because it is critically important in this case to understand that when Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, we are in Romans 8. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he says it in the broader context of Romans chapter 8, of all places to tell us that we might die. We're in Romans chapter 8, the Mount Everest of the Bible, as J.I. Packer so famously wrote. We are in the portion of Scripture where Paul begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in the portion of Scripture which just beyond this passage contains some of the richest verses on assurance in all of Scripture. Paul is just about to say to us, Who can separate us from the love of God? It is Christ Jesus that died for us. God condemns and we are right with him. Therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It is in that broader context that Paul says, inspired scripture, no errors. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You have got to learn to love the tensions in Scripture. There are many tensions in the Bible. And you dare not bypass them. You dare not avoid them. You dare not put them to one side, preferring to go to easier texts to understand. You dare not sweep them under the rug. You dare not pass them off as if they're easily explainable, but rather embrace them, probe them, search them out, and study them because it is in the tensions of Scripture that theological truths are uncovered. There is a tension in Romans 8 when on the one hand Paul says, the love of God will ever be with you because you are in Christ, and at the same time, in the same chapter, if you do this, you will die. Spiritually, there is a death being held out to the Christian in Romans chapter 8. So how do we resolve that tension? There are many throughout church history that have sought to resolve this tension by saying it is entirely possible to be saved brought into union with Christ, and at a later date to no longer be in union, to no longer be saved. 
There are many throughout church history who have sought to reconcile this tension as well as many other times that we see it in the Bible by suggesting that it is entirely possible to fall away from the domain of salvation. And I would encourage you not to embrace that as the means by which we reconcile this tension. It creates far more problems than it resolves. Not least the many verses on assurance that come later in this very chapter. You now have the problem of explaining those away. It is not theologically sustainable to say that you can be saved, genuinely and truly saved, united with Christ, and at a later point to have that union severed. An alternative explanation so as to reconcile this tension as given by the reformers and so many others in church history is to give heed to what we call the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. God intends to glorify all those whom he has justified. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 stands and it must stand bold in your heart. All those whom he has predestined, he has called. All those whom he has called, he has justified. All those whom he has justified, he has glorified. At the same time, the God-appointed means by which we would obtain to final salvation is our striving. That is the doctrine of perseverance. And the certainty of the final outcome by no means diminishes the means by which we are to get there. The certainty with which Scripture sets forth our final glorified state, that absolute certainty that Paul speaks of, by no means diminishes the means by which God has ordained that we would get there, namely our perseverance. So this is a a real warning that Paul is given. And he is telling us, if you are in Christ, it is your responsibility to persevere to strive, and by striving, God will ensure that you reach the intended end, namely your glorified state with Christ. He says it in a slightly different way in the same text in verse 17. He says, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. This is eschatological realities now. Provided, and here it is again, there's the caveat, there's the contingency, provided We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I'll relieve the pressure a tiny bit. I'll alleviate that tension a tiny bit by simply saying that the word suffer here does not necessarily mean suffering in exactly the same manner in which Christ suffered. It does not have to be that the only path to glory is to trace out precisely the same footsteps as Christ, ending in a crucifixion on a cross. But nevertheless, there is to be a suffering in the Christian life. And to take that verb very broadly, I believe Paul intends us to understand that the suffering in the Christian life is simply that which comes about through our constant denial of the things of the world, 
our constant turning away from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes by saying no to that which dishonors God, there is a kind of suffering in the Christian life. And Paul says that is absolutely necessary. It is ordained by God. It is his appointed means by which you would make it to the end. And the certainty of your final glorification does not by any means diminish God's appointed path for you to get there. Now, this morning I spoke in passing about some trends that we have seen within society over the last several decades, secularism and individualism and consumerism, and the the list goes on. There are equally trends that happen and occur and come and go within the church. And it's often a, a... Fruitful exercise simply to step back and understand the way in which church history has understood scripture and communicated the message of scripture because it teaches us so much about the church. And one of the trends that we have seen in the last 10 or 20 years within evangelicalism is a recentering of the gospel in all things. And this is a good thing. I don't, I don't fault this trend. I think it's a wonderful thing to bring all of life under the banner of the gospel as we have seen in recent times so that you now frequently come across books and articles and sermons that are teaching us such things as the gospel-centered life or the gospel-centered parenting or gospel-centered work. And the list goes on, and I do think there's much value in that emphasis that we've seen. There's a negative outworking of that at the same time, and it has come about in large measure through the careless presentation of the gospel, especially from the pulpit. And it It sounds something like, because Christ has paid for our sins, you are now free to fail in him. All too often in recent years, you hear the message that sounds something akin to, because Christ covers you, and he is your all in all, and and your life is wrapped up in him, you should feel the freedom to fail. And that is not the gospel. The Bible does not teach that. What the Bible teaches is because Christ is your all in all and your sins are covered by him, you are now free to persevere. You have now been set free from the bondage of sin and death so as to strive. Christ has saved you. He's paid for your sins with his own life, his own blood. And such great a cost puts responsibilities on your shoulders, not least the responsibility each and every day to strive in the strength that God provides to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God's appointed means by which you would get to glory. And so there is much need simply to reestablish in the church today and in our own thinking the biblical teaching that Christians must persevere. 
We must persevere. If you are negligent in this respect, at least two things will come about in your life. Number one, you quickly become a lazy Christian. Number two, you will very quickly become a miserable Christian. God has created you for good works. And if you are not giving yourself to those good works as the means by which you persevere, you will be utterly miserable. There are so many Christians today who are discontent. And I'm convinced that so much of the problem goes back to their failure to get up in the morning and to run the race, to persevere, to fight against their sin to fight against the inclinations of the flesh and to run towards holiness. This is God's intended means by which you would one day be glorified. And to neglect it, to overlook it, to be complacent about it will result in your misery as a Christian. Some of the most miserable people in life are Christians. Christians who do not persevere. So the first step is to acknowledge the reality, our responsibility to persevere. And from there comes another question, how then do we persevere? What is the means of my perseverance? I see the real warnings given to Christians concerning the possibility of my death. Somehow I know that if God has justified me, he will glorify me. At the same time, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That then gives rise to the doctrine of perseverance. So my question is, how am I to persevere? What is the means by which I strive as a Christian? And the answer is grace. The grace by which you were saved is the very same grace by which you persevere. It is not a different grace. It is not a different approach to grace. The grace by which you were saved is exactly the same grace by which you persevere. Now, as I say that, if you're tracking with Paul's argument in this text, you might be thinking, but I don't see the word grace. In this paragraph, that's a very good and astute observation. And I concede the word grace is not here. In part, my burden in preparing these messages was to be within one text. I really wanted to be in one text and to show what one book of the Bible does as it speaks about the multifaceted nature of grace. And so having landed on Romans Five to speak about grace in salvation. I then came to Romans 8 to speak about grace in our perseverance. And I also felt burdened to highlight as a first step the responsibility to persevere. And this text shows that perhaps as clear as any other in the Bible. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul makes it clear that the Apostle's message from chapter 5 primarily concerns the domain of death, where we all find ourselves before Christ. 
The domain of death is our plight before the momentous work of God's grace brings us into the domain of life. Quote, rich, glorious, and full gospel realities, walking in the Spirit, having claimed Jesus as our Savior. Understanding that becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus, opens to us the domain of life, where we persevere by grace through our natural lives into heaven. Have you accepted God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ? To learn more, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, scroll down to the article titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Christian and to Know the Forgiveness of Your Sins? That's timelesstruthtoday.org. Scroll down to, What Does It Mean to Be a Christian and to Know the Forgiveness of Your Sin? Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Join us tomorrow, Tuesday, when Pastor Paul will go deep into Romans chapter 8 for a life-changing grasp on the marvelous grace in salvation and perseverance. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.